Privyet e dabro pajolavan na Supergirls Attic. I'm Cycles. And I'm Vivi. And today we're going to discuss episode 16 of season 4 of Supergirl, titled The House of L, as in the letter L, as in Luther. And this features the sort of origin story of Cosni and Kara, which we've been waiting for all season. In case you couldn't tell. <laughs> <laughs> and this is tying into their nature versus nurture theme that we've seen hints of in other storylines. Mm. But this is the real culmination of that idea. And we're seeing it in full force. Here we have a Kara who is initially without any nurture. It's just her nature because she doesn't have any memories, either of her life on Earth or her life on Krypton. All she remembers is the word Alex. Which was heartbreaking yes. in its own way. Which was the idea of Gabrielle Giannis. So thank you for that heartbreaking concept. And it fit together so nicely with the fact that you have Akara, who the only thing she remembers is some vague impression of Alex. Mm -hmm. And Alex, who doesn't remember whole parts of Kara. Yeah. So at the end of last season in the finale, Kara, our Kara, touched Haranel in order to separate Rain from Sam to split them. And then from Kara came another Kara. <laughs> she landed in Kaznia. So as far as we know, this Kara, the only thing that she had in her head that is the same as our Kara, as far as memories, is that Alex name. Well, and that it's important to her somehow. Yeah. And that she associates it with being safe. Mm. That's the only other big thing, because the times you see her say it is when she feels afraid or threatened. Mm -hmm. So otherwise, we're sort of running off the assumption that this Kara is a representation of her nature and doesn't have other sorts of impressions left over from Kara Danvers in order to be able to make the comments about who Kara is on a base level. But we get to see her origin story and they sort of emphasize that it is an origin story in some interesting ways. So Kosni and Kara is sort of led out of her little room and walks into the woods and the sun hits her and she has powers and they try to coach her in to listening to like the birds around her and she ends up floating a little bit with this cute happy smile on her face mm -hmm. and it's very reminiscent of in the supergirl movie with helen slater mm -hmm. when supergirl in the movie is sort of flying around and taking joy in the nature around her which is very different from what was on krypton yeah like you have that cute scene of her where she makes a flower bloom with her heat vision <laughs> yes and it's funny because in the movie the track that plays during that scene from the score is called flying ballet and the music in this scene is from Spartacus, which is a Russian ballet. So there's that sort of connection. So the instrumental music that they chose for this episode was interesting because they used specifically Soviet composers. And the choice for using this adagio from Suite 2 of Spartacus was interesting because it's just an intriguing choice that gets you a little bit closer into Kosny and Kara's headspace, especially when you consider that Lex is trying to indoctrinate her with all these things about these great empires and people of power. But a lot of the musical stuff that's underlying these moments for her is about rebelling against that. So there is even this support within just that deep level of the music and the subtext there of a nature versus nurture kind of thing going on. Mm. And we see a lot of the same beats for Kosni and Kara in terms of her experiences that we do for Kara Danvers. Mm. But with this twist and the coloring of the Soviet Russian culture. And immediately after we see that very happy, joyful flying ballet experience that Kosni and Kara has. She crashes down to Earth ha, 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 ha. and experiences that sort of overstimulation and lack of control of her powers that we saw Kara Danvers experience in her early life on Earth. As a tiny baby <laughs> back in season one when she was very little. Yeah. But it's funny because back in season one of those flashbacks, she experienced that. But then she also had that moment where she went to the beach with Alex and her friends and looked up at the sky and was sort of fascinated with the birds. Yeah, actually, the framing of it and the, the lighting is sort of similar because you had her just kind of like basking in the sunlight and like mm. grinning happily up at the sky. Yeah. So they never had birds on Krypton. And obviously for Kosni and Kara, she's never <laughs> heard or seen birds. She doesn't know the concept of bird. <laughs> yes. And they really emphasize that Kosni and Kara hears the sound of the birds chirping. And the sort of Kosnian military officer even calls her a snowbird. <laughs> And then it's funny because right after Kara in the flashback in season one hears the birds, she also hears someone in distress and rushes to help them, which is something we also see Kosni and Kara do later on in the episode. She hears someone call for help 
in Russian. So they share that trait of sort of dropping everything and I'm going to go rush and do this and help someone without really caring about the consequences that may occur. Ha ha, she's going to go rush and do this. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's in some ways a little bit similar to that first rescue that she makes in season one when she doesn't quite know what she should do to rescue people. (laughs) But she just reacts and does it anyway. Yeah. She's like, but I can help people. (laughs) But it also sort of goes awry because people get hurt in that process. In that flashback, Kara saves this woman and a baby from their burning vehicle. And then when it explodes, Alex actually gets hurt because she gets hit by the explosion. And this Kara, unfortunately being adultier, has more dangerous powers at her disposal. (laughs) And kills several people accidentally. Not on purpose. Yes. (laughs) But it is cool to see those parallels in terms of what is at the core of Cara Danvers and her personality before the events that have shaped her. So we see that that instinct is pretty innate in her. And there are several other characteristics and tendencies that they share. And we will also get into the differences later. Mm-hmm. It's funny that later on, when Kazanin Carr eventually gets to know Cara Danvers a little bit, she reads her journal. Not unlike how regular Cara read all of Kat's letters to her son. <laughs> yeah, but she was trying to help. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> she just needed to know. So Kazanin Carr says, Cara Danvers wants to do good. She has compassion. She has friends. So these are things that she recognizes as positive traits in her and are on some level things that they share to a degree. They both have compassion, obviously, as we talked about when Kazanin Kara heard the young boy suffering. She went to go help immediately. And then later on, we see that she feels bad that he's like lonely, something she could probably relate to. All versions of Kara. (laughs) (laughs) And that's something that Lex recognizes in her. He sees that compassion. And then immediately in that scene, like you can see him kind of think about it. And then he tries to direct Kara's compassion to himself and talks about how his father wasn't a good man and how he was waiting for somebody to save him, essentially. Mm-hmm. Which plays upon exactly what Kara would want to hear, all versions. <laughs> also interesting that he mentions about how he has a father who wasn't so great and um, what does Alex Danvers have? <laughs> Jeremiah. Oh, Jeremiah. (laughs) (laughs) We we have some criticisms of him, in case you haven't picked up on those hints. Um, And it's also interesting because Cosney and Kara is pretty quickly able to empathize with Kara Danvers, and she's really willing to get into her headspace without maybe being sort of defensive of the preconceived notions that she has. And then obviously, as we talked about, she has that same urge to act that was heavily emphasized in Kara Danvers in the last episode, when she was stressed out about James and directing all of her energy and time to doing something, anything, as opposed to kind of just being there for the space fam. And Gosling Carr is immediately ready to act, which is one of the first things that we know about her. When we have that flash earlier in the season, after the kryptonite is dispersed in the air, and at the end of the episode, we see her come out of her little tomb-like structure. (laughs) Her lead cave. Yes. (laughs) And she's like, you know, can I get back to training? But now we know why. Exactly. There's more depth to that moment. Well, it's also interesting that when she's tricked into thinking that the little boy is killed by the Americans, she immediately runs after Americ Tech. And it kind of reminds me of after Cara Danvers wakes up from the Black Mercy after she loses everything all over again, in a sense. In season one, she says, who did this to me? And immediately goes after Nan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then we see this Cosney and Cara say, who would do this? And then immediately run after who she thinks did it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a trait that we've seen with Cara Danvers repeatedly throughout the course of the series, not just in that one. Like that Black Mercy moment is a great example of it. Mm -hmm. But we also saw it a little bit this season with the way she was kind of like pursuing some of her journalism stories without maybe finishing all the fact checking just because she had a hunch that like this is the right story to tell or what have you. Yeah, she's she's like headstrong. Yes. Opinionated. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's always fun to watch her develop in terms of that and reining some of that in and directing it better. And then we also see, of course, Lex is like (laughs) trying to get her not to go and run and do that. Where he's like, a Luther waits. (laughs) And she's like, bye. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And she also says to him, you don't give me commands, which is rather like Kara back at President Baker when (laughs) he's like, we don't want a war with Supergirl. And she's like, well, then you better not start (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so she 
she's even with Jean and like the DEO in general. If she thinks something should write, she'll she'll just do it. The sass is still there. <laughs> yeah. So they're both defiant in that way. And then another trait that Cosney and Carr and Cara Danvers share is that as Cara Danvers has said, I'm a pretty good judge of character. Which is usually true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are times when it turns out not to be true, but when she stakes claim in it, it usually turns out to be legit. With Cosney and Carr, we saw that soldier who was saying like kind of gross things and, and then walked over to her and touched her shoulder. And she doesn't even know the language that they're speaking, but she knew he was a creep. And we saw her crush his hand. And then later on with that same soldier, she sort of guarded the kid that she was protecting from him when he was approaching. So she has a sense about him. And then with Lex, there are a few moments where she sort of calls him out and says things that are pretty observant, despite Lex's mind games. Mm -hmm. He talks about Alexander the Great and says he conquers the world. And Cosney and Kara says, this appeals to you. She notices that trait in Lex. And when he talks about how, you know, the Americans are terrible because they have money and then that's a bad thing. She talks about how he has money and she's observed that. Yeah, for a dude who's supposed to be in prison, he's certainly dropping by Cosnia an awful lot. Yeah, so she puts that together. And then when they're sort of the climax of their tensions after she kills the people on the Ameritech ship, mm -hmm. she asks him what she is to him and says, some soldier then, Alexander's conquering army, which is like exactly <laughs> what Lex... Exactly what he's going for. Yeah, and he, he has this face that's like, oh... <laughs> crap. <laughs> you figured out exactly what I have in my brain, which is a trait that he doesn't like, as we'll talk about later on. Yeah, he doesn't like people who display independent thought that gets in the way of his plans. Mm -hmm. And people who call him out. We also see in her relationship with Lex that she, like Cara Danvers, relates her own experiences to other people's experiences to understand them. Like when Lex is telling her that Supergirl has usurped her position in the world and taken from her, she says, like you're Alina. Mm. And this is usually like a positive trait in Cara Danvers when she's sort of like, oh, I can use my experiences to relate to this person and maybe help them. It's a negative thing when... You're doing it with a sociopath? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when your nurture is coming from somebody who models terrible behavior, then it's not usually a good thing. No. It's also interesting that Cara perceives Lex as thinking Lena took something from him mm. because I don't think Lena would ever see it that way at all. Yeah. And it's an interesting that she notices that in Lex when we haven't really seen him express it quite that way. No. But he certainly feels that way. So we see Lex try to shape her behavior. One thing that he isn't expecting is when Kara reads The Great Gatsby and talks about how beautiful it is. And that's a trait that she also shares with Kara Danvers, sort of the appreciation of beauty. Obviously, we saw with the scene where Cosney and Kara sort of experiences nature with her super senses that she really enjoys that. And then like the music that plays underneath it emphasizes that it's a beautiful experience. And when she reads The Great Gatsby, she says it's beautiful, lush, talks about like the language in it. Which is kind of interesting because Cara Danvers, as we know her, is so much a humanities-oriented person yeah. in that we know she likes art. She went into writing. Mm -hmm. She has an appreciation for lots of aesthetic kinds of things and culturally valuable things. Yeah. And with Cosney and Cara, she only gets a few pieces of fiction to enjoy <laughs> or to not enjoy <laughs> to um, sort of educate her, quote unquote. And she's attracted to the more poetic and pretty aspects of the novel. Meanwhile, Lex is like, okay, this will give her the message that, you know, the American dream is flawed and that having uh, excess of money is a bad thing. Unless you are Lex Luthor. Unless you, of course. But then Kara, you know, doesn't get that read from it. And it's interesting because when the kryptonite is dispersed in the air, when Cosney and Kara sees it, she looks at it sort of with awe. And like seems to think that it's beautiful. And as Eric Carrasco on Twitter pointed out, this is very similar to Gatsby and his green light. Mm -hmm. Bet it was supposed to be. <laughs> and then it's funny because immediately after seeing that, she is made to feel pain from the kryptonite. So that's sort of the beginning of her associating beauty with bad things. Later on, when she is immersed in this sort of American lifestyle in Cara Danvers, she sees Cara's apartment and like evidence of her liking the humanities. Obviously, she reads her journal. Um, and she also sees her painting that she has up on the easel, which I was excited about. Because it's your favorite one. It is. 
uh, I'm like, oh my god, it's a close up of the sadness painting. <laughs> sadness painting. I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before. Mm-hmm. This painting has sort of periodically popped up when Kara's feeling down. It first popped up at the top of season three after Kara sent Monel away and thought that she had killed him in the same way that she was traumatized as a 13 year old when she was in the pod and then went into the Phantom Zone. And the painting looks very much like you know that bright swirling void in the blackness of space that Kara would have seen when going into the Phantom Zone for 24 years. So I was happy that that was the painting that she saw because I was like, hey, it's my favorite one, Cosney and Kara. Yours personally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this painting popping up in this episode is particularly interesting for me because this episode featured a lot of references to the Americans, the TV show, which was very exciting. We'll talk about more later. It sure was great. <laughs> So the Americans just ended this past season, and the story is about two Soviet spies who get sent to the United States and have to masquerade as like a stereotypical American family. Mm -hmm. And throughout this, they have to raise their children who are born in the United States and U.S. citizens and deal with all the repercussions of that. (laughs) It deals with sort of the conflicting ideologies of Soviet Russia and and America. Uh And Elizabeth, one of the two main characters in the final season, has a sort of interesting relationship with an artist. And having her own ideology is very dismissive of art and sees it as like a frivolous sort of thing, much like the idea that Lex would want to instill in Kazi and Kara. But then there's this painting of a woman who like looks kind of anguished and seems to be trapped and it speaks to her sort of like without her permission, <laughs> it kind of creeps in. And it's interesting because when I watched The Americans and that part came up, I sort of mentally linked Kara's painting because I was interested in that at the same time. So it's neat to have this sort of same relationship where Cosney and Kara comes in, it sort of speaks to her, but because of the ideology that she is meant to have, is supposed to dismiss it. But there are obviously virtues to having art in the world. <laughs> For Kara, Kara Danvers, it is an expressive medium and Kara Danvers' relationship with the appreciation of beauty and like the little things in life and enjoying that is a big part of choosing to be happy after, you know, having trauma in your life, which hopefully Cosney and Kara will experience one day. <laughs> Speaking of hope, hope. <laughs> Cosney and Kara and Kara Danvers share the trait of being hopeful, which is interesting because in The Great Gatsby, the narrator Nick describes Gatsby as having an extraordinary gift for hope. Although in The Great Gatsby, Gatsby is, of course, hoping for something that he will never be able to attain, which is possibly why Lex would want Cosney and Kara to read it. And just the fact that Cosney and Kara reads this book and thinks of it as beautiful and something to want to have and to aim for, as opposed to sort of resenting these characters for having everything they have is sort of a hopeful act. And believing in people like Cara Danvers is also hopeful. And she recognizes that Cara Danvers wants to do good, which is like the main thing for both Cars. Indeed. We have seen for quite some time that Cara as a character is capable of pretty much anything if she thinks that it is the right thing to do. Even in season three, at the end, we saw her willing to kill someone because she thought there was no other way. And then afterwards decided that that was in fact the wrong thing to do. And it's funny because I think back in season two, I was reflecting on what would be a good villain for the show and we had had red kryptonite Kara come on and i thought it would be interesting if they had a Kara who has the same positive traits as our Kara, but is made to think that the wrong thing is the right thing mm. and that's the core difference between Kazi and Kara and Kara danvers the nurture aspect which is coming from lex luther who is influencing her to believe all the things that she believes and Cosney and Kara comments on the differences that she perceives in herself and Kara Danvers. She says, Supergirl acts on her emotions. It's selfish, ugly. I will not be like her. I will be me. I will be disciplined. So Supergirl acting on her emotions is something that we've talked about before. <laughs> she sure does. <laughs> Sometimes to my great frustration, but this is also why we love Kara. Well, it's, it's interesting because this is another one of those traits that's like a positive trait in one situation, a negative trait in another. Yeah, exactly. As most people's key personality (laughs) traits are, which it's important to remember that all people can be read as good or bad depending on the situation. (laughs) Although Lex, no. (laughs) Yeah, although Lex, mostly just bad. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny because Cosney and Kara is right in that Supergirl acts on her emotions, but she's also not fully right. Kara lets her emotions guide her to 
what she thinks is right, like morally Mm. and like who she should believe in and what she should believe in. But once she makes that decision, she will do whatever it takes to sort of adhere to her beliefs as opposed to maybe something like making herself feel better emotionally. Yeah. Or like indulging a negative emotion or a negative impulse. Yeah. So the way Cosme and Kara reads Kara Danvers is interesting in that she thinks that displaying emotions and wanting emotional fulfillment is selfish, which I think runs very counter to the way a lot of people, particularly in Western society, would think. Mm -hmm. And we talked about this a few times, I think, in maybe the Mothers and Daughters podcast and then also in the Danvers family podcast, Mm -hmm. talking about kind of the cultural differences between a Western society like the United States and Krypton, where Kara grew up, and then also now looking at this kind of alternate universe Russia-Soviet culture that Cosney and Kara's embedded in with this different outlook on what it is to be individualistic and to think of yourself versus thinking of other people and kind of ignoring your own emotions. And she's obviously been taught that that's bad. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes with Kara Danvers, it ends up that acting upon her emotions actually is for the good of other people mm. because so much of that is also out of empathy. Yeah, exactly. And in season three, we saw the negative fallout of Supergirl no longer acting on her emotions. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, and we saw that in the Earth X crossover as well. Akara completely detached from emotion and kind of devoid of empathy for people. Mm-hmm. Wasn't a good look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And for Alex, we see that her current storyline where she is learning to put herself first and not be so stressed out about Kara's safety is a positive thing for her and her character development. Mm-hmm. Well, and the other thing is that saying that Kara is undisciplined isn't exactly true. Like that impression comes from the idea that Kara left some like her clothes out (laughs) or something while she was getting ready to go on vacation, which, you know, whatever. She wasn't expecting random people to come to her house. Um, But I don't I don't think that's actually true. Kara Mm -hmm. is actually quite disciplined and it comes up a lot in terms of the way we see that she restrains herself so much of the time physically Mm. and emotionally and especially now she's having to do that so much more around Alex for example because of her not remembering certain kinds of things or like with Lena with what she can and can't say but also in terms of how seriously she takes the ethical code that she follows and how closely she adheres to it even when it would be convenient not to Mm -hmm. I mean she is in her own way very very carefully disciplined about the choices that she makes and the things that she does and how they affect other people. It's just very American. (laughs) Yeah. She also was Kat Grant's uh, assistant. (laughs) That requires some discipline for sure. Mm -hmm. And then it's funny when you talk about Kara Danvers having to be physically restrained because Cosney and Kara like multiple times hurt people because of her physical strength and not reining that in. Well, and it's hard to decide if they're actually trying to encourage her to learn how to do it Mm. in a pro-social kind of way or if it's just like, if we don't provoke her, it's fine and then we can just turn her loose like a secret weapon. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, the only thing that ever really stops Cosney and Kara is like her feeling empathy. <laughs> her feeling emotions. Yeah. yeah. When she bursts into the Ameritech ship and like heat visions a bunch of people and then she's leaning over the person that it looks like she killed and then she has her eyes lit up with heat vision as she looks over to the other two and they are obviously fearful and want her to not kill them and she sees that fear and then she stops herself. Uh, so it's a very emotionally driven restraint. And we also see that when she accidentally kills people when protecting the young boy, she says, like, are you mad at me to Lex? And clearly knows on some level that it's a bad thing that she accidentally killed them and seems to feel bad about it. And then Lex is like, no, you you did the right thing. You saved that boy. It's fine that you killed people. Yeah. Whereas you have, like, look back at season one with Kara and the red kryptonite. The very first thing she asks Alex as soon as she has self-awareness again is, did I kill anyone? And she's devastated by the thought that she might have. Mm, Yeah. Plus also Kara Danvers has the memory of witnessing the immediate destruction of 
lots of people yeah. and I think understands the concept of death in a very different yeah. way than <laughs> fair <laughs> than this newborn adult Kryptonian. Yes. And it's interesting when you compare Cosney and Kara and Kara Danvers and killing number one, because Cosney and Kara is sort of born right after Kara Danvers realizes that in fact, killing is bad <laughs> and that she should stick to her morals mm. and redoes everything so that she can choose not to kill Rain because she thinks of it as sort of like cosmic consequences for her actions and not doing what she internally thought was right. So it's funny that Kara Danvers makes this decision to not kill Rain and then Cosney and Kara comes into being and then kills a bunch of people. This is fine. <laughs> and then it's also interesting because sometimes we'll talk about like how to push Kara Danvers to do certain things like narratively. Like would Kara be capable of killing in X circumstance? A conversation we like having. <laughs> And I've always said that, like... You always say no. <laughs> I say, I sort of amended it in terms of, like, if she thinks it's the right thing to do, she will do it. It's just I don't think that Car Danvers would know that it's the wrong thing to do and think that, like, oh, I shouldn't kill this person and then do it out of, like, anger or something. I don't see that happening. Yeah. But Cosney Carr does not have that restraint because she doesn't have the same experiences and hasn't come to the same conclusions about morality that Car Danvers has. <laughs> I was thinking about how we had that conversation, like, what would push Car to do this, which is the same line of thinking that Lex had in this episode. And so we're like, would this happen if Kara lost the thing that she loves most? And the answer seems to be maybe. <laughs> well, my Your... <laughs> interpretation is if she didn't have the moral foundation that she has now. Yes. If you erase everything that she remembers. In this circumstance right now, anything could happen. Yes. And the other thing that was sort of neat in terms of what we track in themes and motifs across the season, Lex killing the child in order to push Kara to hate America ties nicely into the sort of manipulation and use of children in this season so far. Mm -hmm. And then totally separate from this conversation about differences in terms of like morals or killing, but you made a kind of interesting observation about the way Cosney and Kara's suit is designed, which I thought was mm. kind of cool. Yeah. So we know that Cosney and Kara initially was very fond of like beautiful things and likes joy. <laughs> and Lex sort of nurtures her to reject that desire that she has. And so Cosney and Kara's suit is sort of minimalist looking. It's obviously not as bright and colorful as Kara Danvers' suit. It's like dark gray. And she goes for pants as opposed to a skirt. And one of the things that I like about Kara Danvers' suit is that, you know, the skirt is a fun thing and it's like a girly thing to see in a superhero who was also very strong. But this Cosney car is rejecting the idea that she can also have that. And speaking of attire and clothing that Cosney and Kara wears. She got to go spying yeah. just like the Americans. <laughs> yes. In this episode. And actually, it was funny because there was a collection of Elizabeth Jennings' various disguises, and one of them actually looked very similar to the aesthetic <laughs> yeah. that Cosney and Kara was wearing in this episode. Although I did see someone else say that it looked a little bit like Lois Lane from the 80s movies, mm. which would make sense, though, because that's the same time period as the Americans. Yeah. And speaking of comic books, she uses the pseudonym Linda Lee. Yes. That was a nice, sneaky nod again to the Supergirl movie and the comics. Mm -hmm. And this whole situation is really amusing to me because we had that whole podcast episode about Kara's disguise and the glasses, and we tied it into what real spies do. Mm -hmm. And now we see Cosney and Kara being a spy and pretending to be Kara Danvers and trying to pull off that persona. And it's interesting to put Cosney and Kara's impersonation of Cara Danvers up next to, you know, Cara Zarel being Cara Danvers and seeing someone being kind of worse at it than she is. In terms of lying, Cosney and Cara like stutters more and fumbles when she is talking to Alex and then later on when she talks to Lena. And it's also interesting because her body language is like slightly different than Cara Danvers' body language. Yes. Back when she is sort of a blank slate, we see that she's like holding a cup weird. So we're starting from scratch <laughs> in terms of physical movement and impressions that you get on how to do things from society. She has like a neutral expression. But then when we jump later on to when she's being Cara Danvers, she holds herself very differently. Like when she's standing in Cara Danvers' apartment mm -hmm. and she's wearing Cara Danvers' clothing and she still looks like a different character, which is 
really neat and interesting. Like she stands straighter, which if I recall correctly is also a like European thing. I feel like don't Americans like lean over more? Oh, like slouch? A little bit. Or lean on a leg like more so? Oh, yes. That a little bit. And then when Alex shows up, she sort of hunches over more and like moves around in a more relaxed manner than we had seen her before to impersonate Cara Danvers. And I guess her perceived like American view of her. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. She does an okay job of it, considering at this point she's been exposed to the world outside her little lead capsule for like a week. Yeah. <laughs> and that takes us to the biggest difference between Cosney and Carr and Cara Danvers. Cosney and Carr just does not know about the world on the same level at all and on purpose. <laughs> yeah, because in theory, it's a lot easier to control someone and control what they think mm. if they're not exposed to anything else ever. Yeah. One of the things that she says in her list of positive traits about Cara Danvers is that she has friends, which <laughs> Cosney and Cara doesn't. Nope. <laughs> and it's funny that she says that Cara Danvers is like a princess in a tower because Cosney and Cara, I would say, is more like the princess in the tower. And specifically the princess Rapunzel, mm. who is locked in a tower on purpose by an abusive kidnapper. Mm, yeah. And then it's funny because when she's like let out of her like quote unquote tower the first time. It kind of is like tangled. <laughs> she has this very Disney princess experience of like hearing the birds and like flying. And and there's happy music montages. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have her when she's in the room, there's a music montage while she's burning through all the books to read mm. and everything. It literally is like tangled. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but it's also funny because she says the whole princess and a tower thing like to be dismissive mm-hmm. of Cara Danvers and say like oh she's soft and kind of weak as a person because she has all these creature comforts like furniture <laughs> yeah <laughs> and personal effects like yeah. I mean they're not necessities but they help make you feel like a person <laughs> Yeah. And I think that's important, too, in terms of the difference between the two as far as identity. Cara Danvers, because of how she was raised on Earth, had the time to find an identity mm-hmm. and figure out kind of who she is. Yeah. Eliza made it a point to have her have a childhood and, and have a baseline of experiences and find herself and learn about the world. Yeah, instead of letting her turn into a child super soldier, mm. which is a big contrast I think we've talked about already with like the Morai mm. and then what Lex is doing here with Cosney and Kara. Yeah. And we've also seen this idea that like, for instance, with Lena, that having friends makes her a better person. And Kara is surrounded by lots of good people who, when she turns to them for like advice or help, help out in positive ways and and pro-social ways. True for most people, but we see it displayed quite thoroughly here in how Cara Danvers is surrounded by people like Eliza and Alex and Space Fam and Kazi and Cara has Lex. Yeah, to kind of go back to the joke about Rapunzel, Lex is a little like, you know, Mother Gothel or the Witch, Mm -hmm. specifically in the way he's kind of manipulating her, A, to be dependent upon him and B, to rely on his worldview Mm -hmm. to kind of understand how the rest of society works and he also intentionally tries to scare her into thinking everything else is threatening in much the same way like I went back and looked at one of the songs from the musical Into the Woods which deals with that story of Rapunzel called Stay With Me and it's the witch kind of saying yeah okay there might be good stuff out in the world but there's lots of other stuff that's terrible and because of how you are who else is going to love you (laughs) and who else will take care of you as well as I can, which is incredibly manipulative and abusive, obviously. It's funny, though, because in terms of like Tangled, the movie, Uh the Mother Gothel character, her motivation for keeping Rapunzel around is that her hair makes her younger. And here we have Lex, who wants to have sort of a philosophical forever life and twisting Cosney and Kara to be like in his image. And then she will live for a really long time. And continue his legacy. Yes. Far into the future. So we we see the sort of hints of Lex's motivation throughout this episode. And it's funny because they start, you know, it being a flashback episode in a very similar way to how they started the Man of Steel episode, which was a flashback origin story of Agent Liberty. In that episode, Alex says, referring to Kara, who had been poisoned by 
kryptonite. What kind of person is capable of doing this? And then they begin the flashback right after that to sort of answer that question. And in this episode, Kara says, how are you doing this? And then Lex says, how do you think I did it? I'm Lex Luthor. And then we have a flashback of, you know, Lex doing it. <laughs> and it also has that sort of element of nature versus nurture and, and the development of a character into the person they are in present time, comparing like Agent Liberty to Kazan Kara. And we also see Lex's motivations. It's funny because he says to Eve, who it turns out is like a serial killer groupie. Yeah, that was wild. And I think I mentioned to you, it reminded me of um, in Henry Jenkins' first really big book on fan cultures. Mm. There's actually a whole section where he gets into the fact that there are fandoms for like serial killers and school shooters and every disturbing thing you could possibly imagine because people are crazy. <laughs> yeah. And the timing is really funny because we have a couple Ted Bundy films that have come out recently on Netflix and there's one with like Zac Efron playing Ted Bundy mm. and so people are talking about how they're attracted to Ted Bundy and then other people are saying stop that that's gross so this is interesting timing because presumably they wrote that before the premiere of these two movies but Lex says to Eve like I like mentoring in reference to how he was teaching some of the inmates how to play chess and at the beginning of the flashback we saw that he had tried to sort of shape Lena and Superman to be like his investments. Mm. Lena says, I was blind enough to think that he wanted a partner. James continues talking about Superman, but he wanted a pet Kryptonian. So this idea that Lex takes people and tries to shape them into people that he can use, especially if they are gifted in some way, like Lena with her intelligence and Superman with his physical gifts. And then we have Kazi and Carr, who's kind of like a fusion of Lena and Superman. Yeah, a little bit. We see that he failed with Lena and Superman to twist them. So then Kazni and Kara falls into his lap as somebody who has no experiences and is a blank slate and just simply doesn't know any better and, and tries to keep her from being influenced by outside forces. Well, and he also makes sure that every time he sees her, he comes out looking favorable against any other person she might interact with, mm. partially by limiting who she can interact with. Yeah, it's true. And also telling them what to do. Yes. He literally says to Kara when she sort of calls him out for being interested in world domination. He says, you remind me of my sister. So he's like, as soon as she shows that sort of trait of recognizing that what he is doing is maybe not the most pro-social thing, he associates her with Lena in the sense that A, Lena recognized the negative qualities in Lex and called him on it and tried to convince him to be different. And then B, that she's a good person. Yes. And the other thing that was fun about that line was it was a deliberate echo of Alex in 413, she says the same thing to Supergirl about being reminded of Kara. So that was a fun little reference in the text there. Mm -hmm. Two pairs of siblings, which we have been talking about a lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We've been talking all season long about how they've been intentionally really emphasizing this kind of different interplay of sibling dynamics and questioning, you know, who would be Cosney and Kara's Alex if she had one. Mm. And look what we got. <laughs> Literally that. <laughs> and then it's also in terms of sibling dynamics, the fact that Lex calls Kara Danvers Cosney and Kara's sister. Mm. So this feels like the sort of culmination, like it was leading to that moment, the biggest reveal of sibling dynamics. <laughs> I still love the uh, version of the Spider-Man meme that uh, Comic Girl drew <laughs> right? for it with the two Kara's <laughs> pointing at each other like, wait, you. <laughs> yeah. But so Lex failed to shape Lena, Superman, and others, presumably, and gets this person who he can mold to whatever he wants, which was interesting for me on sort of a media level and like tropes, because there's this trope called born sexy yesterday mm. which is when a woman has like just come into being maybe has like skills innate to her where she's a super fighter without having any experiences but she has no knowledge of society and how the world works and then there's this male character who typically takes her under his wing and then shows her how the world works and then she falls in love with him and there has been criticism of that because it's kind of creepy it sure is <laughs> and this there's no 
romantic element to it. Thank God. Yeah. This is more of a parental sort of narrative that they seem to be going for. But it really plays upon the creepiness of that concept where somebody has no experiences and you as the only person that that person has gets to show them the world and shape how they see everything. And then you can play upon their lack of knowledge however you want. So I really enjoyed that sort of commentary that you can make about that. So Lex here, like in the Born Sexy Yesterday trope, shapes her into his image in a way. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which makes sense for the character of Lex, who repeatedly reveals that he's like obsessed with conquerors and like military victories. Obviously, the Alexander the Great reference that they've been making, he does see himself as Alexander the Great. And then Hannibal crossing the Alps is the scene that he carves into the wall in his prison. Um, he sort of sees it as a gift to him specifically, too. He says, she's a miracle. The skies opened up and gave her to me. I can't lose her. And even when she's trying to manipulate him, there's sort of an element of truth. Like, I used to pray for a hero like the one you got. Took a long time, but here you are. <laughs> really trying to lay it on thick <laughs> so that she'll like him. Indeed. And it's funny that he eventually calls her Red Daughter, playing on that sort of parental idea. But he initially doesn't call her anything at all. And Red Daughter is also not really... <laughs> a name. Yeah. He refers to her as an it, says, does it have powers? Yeah. And the Cosnian military officer who's talking to him is kind of taken aback <laughs> and is like, yeah, she does. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's interesting because even they have kind of a positive perception of Supergirl. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. But the fact that Lex doesn't give Kara a name is interesting because we made the comparison with Lena earlier in the season in Rather the Fallen Angel, which was an episode that heavily featured like Frankenstein references. Mm, which you liked a lot. I did as a sci-fi nerd. But she gave Adam the Harnell serum. But she initially, when she had Adam sign up to be a test subject, she only referred to him as a number and wouldn't call him by his name, Adam. Eventually she did call him Adam. But now that we have Lex here, who still hasn't given Kara a name or or suggested that she name herself or reminded her that her name on Krypton would have been Kara, if he's aware of that. It's interesting because he's shaping to be a more fitting Frankenstein figure mm -hmm. with Cosney and Kara as Frankenstein's monster. And retrospectively, Lena <laughs> did eventually call Adam Adam. And there's that quote that is, I ought to be thy Adam, but I am rather the fallen angel. So she ended up being compared to Lex more moral, <laughs> but still. So on the sliding scale of questionable ethics, the reason Lena maybe doesn't think that she's being as questionable as she is is because by comparison to everyone in her own family, she's doing great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's interesting because Lex has sort of like a transfusion with Kara because the Harnell is in his system and that will cure Cosney and Kara. So there's that sort of element of experimentation with the same thing that Lena used, which is Harnell. And then it's interesting that Lex calls Cosney and Kara, you know, red daughter after that sort of transfusion of his blood, mm -hmm. especially after he showed interest in his genes in the scene with Lena when he talks about how he swapped her cheek as soon as she came into the family. <laughs> Which is wild and so messed yeah. up when you consider that she was like four or five years old. Yeah, and he was also like young, <laughs> so it was interesting. Yeah, but it also, it kind of does make sense, like A, if he knew or heard whispers of the fact that she was like a love child, mm -hmm. but also too when you consider she came in as a very young child and then was able to beat him at chess, despite the fact that he mentions in this episode that he trained with Anatoly Karpov, who was one of the like greatest chess masters of the 20th century. So it fits into his perception of wanting to believe that like the Luthers mm. are something special and wanting to confirm to himself for his own mental sense of superiority that, oh, it's okay if Lena beat me because she's still a Luther. <laughs> yeah. And he tries to kind of pull Cosney and Kara into that as well by saying she's a part of the Luther family, if you will. <laughs> yeah. And he says to her, like, Luthers don't. <laughs> <laughs> that scene was great. <laughs> but he has a sort of inflated sense of his nature. Yeah. Which is honestly not all that surprising, considering that he's an extremely wealthy white dude who's been <laughs> indulged in a lot of things for his entire life. Mm. And then this whole scenario is interesting in terms of the Red Sun comic, as you pointed out to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you find out in the Red Sun comic itself that the House of El, like Kara Zor-El, Kal-El, is actually distantly descended from the Luthers somehow <laughs> in this alternate universe. Hence 
hence the name the house of l like the letter l for luther so that was a nice play on that and how they incorporated it by using the the blood transfusion moment Mm -hmm. to give that nod to the source material and then it also makes it a little amusing too that you had him give Cosney and Kara that alias of Linda Lee which was a nod to the Supergirl comic but also gives that alliterative double L initial just like the Luthers so yeah it would make sense for that to have been his decision too so yes (laughs) and then in terms of some sort of real world connections yeah Oh, Lex Luthor. <laughs> Lex relied on some behavioral conditioning in order to influence Cosney and Kara in this episode. He specifically says, she'll hate whoever you want. Operant conditioning is a specialty of mine. Yeah. So for anyone who's ever heard of certain types of behavior therapy, so like cognitive behavior therapy is one that comes up a lot in terms of when you're seeking treatment for, say, depression or anxiety. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that you learn how to retrain your thought patterns and the behaviors that you associate with certain kinds of thought patterns. And that's all just a form of behavior conditioning, which is what he wants to do. And a lot of us understand how this works pretty intuitively, even if we don't consciously think about the fact that we do create associations between certain kinds of feelings and certain kinds of behaviors, either in ourselves or maybe the way parents do with children or siblings or friends do with each other or like in a school setting you start learning to associate certain kinds of maybe sounds or expressions with certain emotions or like things you're supposed to do. And that's essentially what he sets up kind of like a big, long, incredibly unethical experiment (laughs) in this episode. Yeah. We keep coming back to the phrase unethical a lot with the Luthers. (laughs) It's true. It's a problem that they have. (laughs) Yeah. So there's actually two different kinds of behavioral conditioning and they do kind of show both of them in this episode and it's a little bit amusing because the first the first one that was written about and kind of studied is obviously then known as classical conditioning and that has its roots in Russia and operant conditioning which followed from that was published by an American so the fact that you have those two kind of <laughs> yeah ideologies mixing together within the context of this episode is kind of funny in a nice way like I was like ah cool yeah so essentially what operant conditioning is is it's a method of learning, essentially, that applies rewards and punishments to behavior in order to create either positive or negative emotions in the person so that they associate like certain events with certain kinds of consequences. Mm -hmm. And that'll either deter them from doing that behavior in the future or it'll make them more likely to do it. Um, We probably all instinctively understand how this works. So one good example would be like playing a slot machine when you gamble. So you know that if you keep playing long enough, you'll get a reward, but you don't know when the reward will come and you don't know how much it will be. And those are two ways of dishing out a reward that cause people to continue to repeat a behavior a lot longer than they might otherwise, because Mm -hmm. there's still like this hope that you could get like a really great big reward. And that has an emotional and a financial payoff Mm -hmm. that to a lot of people seems worth it. So they'll keep doing it over and over. The fallouts of hope. (laughs) (laughs) The danger of being hopeful. (laughs) So when you you create a operant conditioning system of educating someone, and I say educating like in quotes, (laughs) one of the most important things is deciding how you're going to issue either the reward or the punishment. So you can either do it on like a fixed schedule where like after every five times you do this thing well, you get a prize or after every 15 minutes of studying, you can take a break for five minutes and like do something enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Those are less effective in the long term at getting a behavior to stick generally speaking. So Lex uses the method that is more effective at getting behaviors to stick which is to use what's called a variable timing of rewards and punishments. So when Kara does something good, he'll reward her, but there's no clear pattern to like when Mm. or why, which means that if she wants to be rewarded because that's the only time she gets any kind of positive emotion directed her way or like human contact or Mm. gratification, then that means she needs to do those behaviors as often as possible because she can't predict when she'll get rewarded for them. So you see like the one time he gives her the chocos And the other thing that he does is that he doesn't give her set amounts of time to enjoy the rewards that she might receive. Like, for example, when they go to visit the little boy Mm -hmm. at his house... 
they're clearly there sitting down like they're going to have tea and spend time with him. And then he intentionally like has his watch set to go off and interrupt and say like they have to leave before Cosney and Kara can really fully relax and enjoy herself. Mm -hmm. And then it also makes her really want to be able to go back again because she never feels like she gets enough time. Mm, tricky. But it's interesting because the watch that you referred to has a bell on it and it like rings like a bell, uh -huh. which is like a reference to Pavlov, who is a classical conditioning behaviorist <laughs> and Russian. And it's also interesting because... Lex says she'll hate whoever you want and then says operant conditioning, which you would think the she'll hate whoever you want is an association thing, which goes more with classical conditioning. Yeah, so classical conditioning involves taking two things that are seemingly unrelated and pairing them together so that you have a shared emotional association with both. Mm -hmm. And that eventually, once the training really sinks in, you'll have that emotional reaction to one without the other. Mm -hmm. That's the ultimate goal. So the one thing will have sort of an innate quality of a feeling or a reaction from you. And then the other thing will be sort of innocuous. And then pairing them together makes you associate the innocuous thing with the feeling that you get automatically with the other thing. Yeah. And so this can be used in a good way, like when people are trying to learn how to get over phobias, for example. Mm. But it can also be used in a bad way, like to give someone a phobia or an irrational hatred of an entire country's worth of people. Yes. So you see this come up a bunch in the way that they're mentally training Cosney and Kara to have these negative associations with America and specifically American political targets that Lex is looking at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because right after Cosney and Kara is hit with the kryptonite, she is ushered by Lex into this lead encasing dark small room and then is made to watch flashes of fast food and Americans and then also her planet exploding, Krypton. And then obviously we have the situation where he directs Kara's emotions about the death of the person she loved most to the Americans associating that pain that she felt with them. And then you had a real world example of someone who is disturbingly Lex-like. Yes. So I wonder if someone was aware of this case when they were writing this bit of the script because it fits really nicely. An early person who was doing studies on classical conditioning in the U.S. was this psychologist named John Watson. And he did this fairly famous thing called the Little Albert experiment, where he basically took this like random baby, like not even a year old, mm. and gave the kid a phobia of initially rats, but then it extended to anything that had fur and moved. But then because it was such a young child, little children are prone to this thing called overgeneralization, where they don't categorize things with as much nuance as adults. So mm -hmm. they think more things are the same than they are. So like the, any four-legged animal is a dog, even if it's also like a cat. <laughs> yeah. So the way that the experiment worked was the psychologist would show this little baby small animals and the kid was curious and like excited to see them. And every time he went near it and tried to touch it out of his line of sight, the experimenter would make a loud, scary noise to the point that it scared this kid. And eventually they didn't even need to make the noise anymore. The kid would be scared as soon as he saw the animals because he didn't know why the noise was happening. But he subconsciously picked up the fact that it happened every time he was in the presence of these animals. Yeah. And this stuff can be very hard to undo. <laughs> Yeah. But this psychologist was really not great in a way that's very Luther-like. His attitudes towards children were um, kind of awful, to put it mildly. He, I think, advocated not expressing any kind of affection or sentimentality, to borrow Lex's word from last week, and wrote a parenting book that included, like, don't hug your children ever. Uh, <laughs> Which we now know is actually harmful to the yeah. psychological health of small children. Yeah. So Eliza won Lex Zero. <laughs> yeah, for real. And then Cycles found this other quote that is very fitting with kind of what Lex has been doing tonally in saying, if you give me a dozen healthy infants and my own specified world in which to bring them up, I guarantee I'll be able to take any one of them at random and train him to become whatever I choose. Mm -hmm. And then he gives like a whole like, bunch of examples of professions, some respectable and some really horrible. And he says, I'll be able to do this regardless of their talents, their tendencies, personality traits, abilities, or even like their race and the culture that they come from, which is a 
pretty bold claim. Yeah. And it's definitely also what Lex is trying to say here is that he can outstubborn the innate nature of a person, mm-hmm. which, as we all know, in the case of Mother Nature, <laughs> doesn't work. So. so we'll have to see how that turns out for Lex. <laughs> I know for uh, Frankenstein, it didn't work out well with his monster. Godspeed. Actually, no, because Lex is a terrible, abusive, crazy person. (laughs) So Lex had some interesting tools in his attempt to uh, mold Cosney and Kara into whatever he wanted, specifically to hate America and be loyal to him. We see a plethora of reading materials that Kara speed reads through, although initially she has this like toddler book of dinosaurs in Russian to like learn basic words, which is funny because Melissa Benoist is uh, well-documented as loving dinosaurs. Yes, that was really cute. Mm-hmm. And so we also had her, what I called the indoctrination reading montage. <laughs> later on in the episode. And first, as you said, we got to see her literal speed reading, which was kind of fun. And it also felt like a nice little nod back to the Supergirl movie in the way that we saw Kara trying to quickly pick up cues about her environment and learn about what was going on with those people. And it was also a good demonstration of her innate intelligence. Mm. So that was very cool to see. And secondly, in terms of just a sense of Lex's choices of indoctrination material, one of the writers on this episode, Eric Carrasco, not only helpfully posted a list of all of the books that Lex assigned, he also gave us a couple insights into why some of them were chosen. We're not going to go into super, super detail about (laughs) all of them because there were like at least 12 and that would be way too much. (laughs) If you want to know specifically about all of them, that would be better to send us a question to our blog where you can just read it. (laughs) Supergirlsaddict.com. Yes, you can read it. Just like Kara had to read all the books. <laughs> us preparing for the podcast. <laughs> yes, also us speed reading frantically. Uh, so one of the authors that Lex has Cosney and Kara read is Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which has this concept of the Ubermensch in it, which was the original inspiration for the character of Superman. So that was neat. Mm-hmm. And it's specifically the idea of the Superman being this person who has battled all the corruption associated with modern values and overcome them in order to attain, like, peak intellectual and creative ability. Mm -hmm. It's such a thing that a dude would write, first of all. And you also have to keep in mind that this was written in the 1880s after seeing the implications of the Industrial Revolution in Europe. Nietzsche was German. And it's also at the time when Europe is really uh, feeling itself on like the eugenics movement mm. and thinking about its superiority over the rest of the world. So yeah. all of that makes total sense <laughs> with the, the Lex Luthor mentality. Yeah. Which is interesting because he clearly sees himself as the Ubermensch, but he gives it to Cosby and Cara, likely in the hopes that she will sort of see herself as that kind of savior. And it's interesting because in that book specifically, one of the characters talks about the Ubermensch as sort of a prophecy. Hmm. Kind of like Coville, the way he looked at Cara in season three. Ha. Uh, which is interesting because Lex, although I don't think he's a particularly religious person, certainly sees this event as like a gift from the gods or like the universe to him specifically. Um. <laughs> Speaking of the heavens, some of the other books, I kind of grouped them into themes. I'm not going to go into them too much. So we had several different collections. We had a few books that were related to space (laughs) and the feeling of loneliness (laughs) and the feeling of your planet is eventually going to destroy itself. (laughs) So there were a few that kind of played on that. And played up this kind of sense of urgency and dread was one of the words that Eric used to describe the sense from the one collection of poetry. Mm. And you also had a few books. These were all works of fiction that intentionally played on Kara's innate sense of empathy and compassion for people who are othered and treated poorly. Then there was a third set that were books like of military and political lessons that Kara was supposed to learn. There was one about scientific revolutions. There was uh, Karl Marx talking about the political economy, one about the decline and the fall of the Roman Empire. So learning lessons about the ways in which a powerful country can hit a downfall. And then the last couple were also interesting in that they were books on communications and linguistics. 
topics. And one of them is a really foundational text related to semiotics, which I absolutely love. So that was fun. But both of those books were kind of related to learning how you create meaning out of symbols and shapes and words and understanding how the messages that you send out and receive are perceived by other people. (laughs) So those were interesting in the sense that Cara Danvers is in a profession related to communications and uses language all of the time. So it was kind of interesting that Lex gave those to Cosney and Cara, whether it was to prepare her for pretending to be Cara Danvers or something else, I guess we'll see. And then let's see. Oh, to go back to kind of what I mentioned at the start of the podcast about the ways that they were using instrumental music in this episode was the whole reading montage was again set to a very Soviet-associated Russian composer, Dmitry Shostakovich, and it's one of his more famous pieces. And again, was an interesting choice because he was initially denounced by the communist government for not being creative in the approved ways by the state. So for a number of years, his works were not allowed to be performed or played until Stalin died. And he didn't end up joining the Communist Party until later. And a lot of his music is very intensely emotional and kind of deals with that anxiety from living through that period. Mm. So again, that was a very interesting choice. It was also interesting because when we were creating the outro for Supergirl's Attic, we were like, what if we made it sound sort of classically Russian? Um, (laughs) And he was one of the composers that we looked at for inspiration. Yes. By your suggestion. So, And sort of speaking of the Soviets... (laughs) Um, We got to see the symbol that is on Kosny and Kara's chest in her super suit. Initially, in the title card of the episode, which was different than the regular Supergirl title card. Yeah, a thing you love to pay attention to. So you took great joy at that. Indeed. And it was interesting because it was like a full 10 minutes of show before the title card happened. Yeah. It's only been a couple of times that they've gone that long before the break. Yeah, usually in an um, intense episode. And so it is a sort of a hammer and a sickle, but the, uh, the sickle's a full circle. <laughs> Which is interesting because we were wondering if they would go for that symbol because Russia is not the Soviet Union anymore. But they explained that the people in Kosnia want to bring back the glory days of the Soviet Union. So that was an interesting way to get around that. It was. Oh, you know what, though? It's funny because in some of the fan feedback that I've seen on social media, there's people who are like, why is it focusing on Russia? Why this? Blah, blah, blah. Why are we looking at the Cold War? And I remember having the same reaction when I took a few of my intro classes in international relations and being like, the Cold War is over. Why is this important? And adult me is laughing at 20-year-old me now because look at the state of the world. Yeah. And um, so they're doing that because they're basing it on a comic that was written during the Cold War, <laughs> first of all. But second of all, Russia's still a major player especially behind the scenes where we're not aware of it on the world stage and is still incredibly politically relevant. So for as much as maybe they could have picked some other kind of smaller country that is having a lot of these real world issues, it's still okay that they went with this the way that they chose to. So, And uh, sort of speaking of the Soviet era, the Cold War, we have the Americans references. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. We both got really excited about that. Eve is the first one who explicitly mentions it. And then once she did, I also made the connection back to the little boy. Yeah. But we'll explain that in a second. So first of all, we got a little bit more insight into how Eve has been playing along and playing into Lex's scheme this entire time. And I expect next week we'll find out maybe how long she's known that Kara is Supergirl. Hmm, I'll be curious to see. But when she busts Cosney and Kara deviating from the plans, as all Kara's are want to do, <laughs> in the elevator at Catco after Cosney and Kara goes there to see Lena and kind of find out why Lex has such a kind of like personal vendetta against her and seems to resent her so much. Eve snaps at her and is like, don't go all Philip Jennings on us and screw this up, <laughs> which... If you've watched The Americans, (laughs) this is a constant struggle between the two main characters because Philip is the husband in this husband and wife spy duo. And in the very beginning of season one, kind of floats the idea of like, why are we killing ourselves to take down this country when like things aren't really so bad here? (laughs) And Elizabeth doesn't care for that. (laughs) She does not. (laughs) At all. (laughs) 
So that was really fun because it was a very accurate read on the way that Cosney and Kara was behaving. And then it's funny because right after that, Lex says to Eve, when Eve goes and calls him frantically, that she's going to be ever so sad when the Americans take it away from her. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that was excellent. But also related to that, if you are familiar with how the series The Americans ended, I am wondering if that reference was not a little bit of foreshadowing for kind of where the Cosnia storyline is going to go. So I guess we'll see. (laughs) Um, Indeed. And then the other cool thing, I kind of picked up on this when the episode happened and then Dana Horgan, the other writer credited on this episode, confirmed it on Twitter, is that the little boy that Kara meets, his name is Mikhail, and Mm -hmm. that was Philip's Russian name in the show, The Americans, and that was why they stuck with that Mm -hmm. as the boy's name. Yeah. (laughs) And it's interesting because that's another way that gives Cosme and Kara that hint of humanity and compassion that everyone seems to want to stamp out of her. So mm-hmm. we'll see where that goes. Yes, we will. We'll see in the very next episode. If you watch the promos that air after the episode next week is all about Eve. That's the title of it. It's not just that it's about her. <laughs> It'll probably also be about her <laughs> significantly. We see Cosme and Kara heat vision to death. A Some people. A whole group of people <laughs> who are in the White House. So that's that's going to escalate. Yeah, and President Baker comes on TV and declares her public enemy number one. Mm-hmm. Which ties in nicely to something that you've been paying attention to. Yeah, I have mentioned this. I think I even talked about this in the most recent episode because Kara said it to Jean mm. that all season long they have made a really clear point to emphasize that Kara as Supergirl represents safety and that when she tells you that you are safe or that everything is okay, she means it and it's true. Yeah. And Cosme and Kara is going to come in and mess that all up. <laughs> sure is. <laughs> It's going to be wild also seeing like how Alex responds to that, not knowing that Supergirl's her sister. Yeah. So there are a lot of elements that will be conflicting. Oh, and how Haley's going to react to it. That's actually probably the bigger concern. Mm, Yeah. Especially since we still know that Baker had some kind of mystery strategy for fighting aliens that has not been revealed yet and some other kind of policy change that hasn't been announced. I wonder if we'll see maybe Lena's super soldiers Mm. at the DEO fighting against either something fake supergirl and possibly real supergirl to be bad <laughs> well we do also know that alex's ethical disagreements with Haley are not done yet there's still more to that mm. so yes i am sure there'll be something coming up. perhaps it'll be you know further important that she is at the DEO. Perhaps. Maybe that's what they were foreshadowing, how the DEO responds to the Supergirl. Mm. So that'll be interesting to see. And we will be back next week with another episode. Thanks for listening.